If you would like to buy your own copy of Nuclear Russia, go to the Bloomsbury website and use code POD35, followed by a respective country code, US, UK, CA, AU, depending on where you're located. Paul Josephson is Professor of History at Colby College in the US, and he's author of 12 books, including Nuclear Russia, The Atom in Russian Politics and Culture. We start off with an overview of the history of nuclear physics and how its emergence in Russia compared with other parts of the world. Then we'll delve into the ways in which nuclear power influenced the Cold War and vice versa, before moving on into a discussion of the ramifications Chernobyl had on the Soviet Union and the rest of the world. Take a listen. Welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Christina Kowalski. And I'm your other host, Wayman Kam. And today we're speaking to Paul Josephson, the author of Nuclear Russia, The Atom in Russian Politics and Culture. Welcome to the show, Paul. We're so excited to be speaking with you. Let's just jump right into the questions right off the bat. What do you think about nuclear history is so compelling and what other things about history does it have to teach us? One of the first books I read as a child was something called Brighter Than a Thousand Suns memoir of the nuclear age. I grew up in the 50s during nuclear testing, so I've always been fascinated by it. And what makes it so fascinating for all of us today is a consideration of how much of the world's resources, personnel, funding, weaponry, peaceful applications, removal of people from their homelands for testing zones, how much of the contemporary world has focused on nuclear applications, both peaceful and military, and how they failed, I would think, to separate the military and civilian, although they are two different spheres. So for me, it's fascinating as a lifelong project. It's also fascinating from the point of view of how much supports the endeavor. I've been reading your book over the last sort of like week or two. I think I read like the rough sort of purely financial calculation of like how much has been spent on nuclear military like applications just I think up until like 2000 or something like that and you said it was something probably north of five trillion just for America alone which is truly like mind-blowing I can't conceive of like that number in my head really. Could you tell us as well like how did the emergence of nuclear physics in Russia compare with like other parts of the world? Some people, because of the Cold War, have tried to adopt narratives that the Soviet Union copied the West and made its science on the basis of espionage and so on. Nuclear physics and nuclear science is a good field to demonstrate the fact that it's nearly impossible to prevent one nation when it's determined from pursuing nuclear applications. We look at the countries in the world that have nuclear weapons, for example. In the 1920s and 1930s, the Soviet physics community was already world-class. They'd been isolated from world physics by World War I and by the revolution. In the 1920s, Soviet physicists were publishing between a sixth and an eighth of all articles in some of the major world, so that when in England, in Cambridge, in the late 20s, Rutherford and his school began to penetrate into the atom, seeking further understandings, leading to Chadwick's discovery of the neutron in 1932, Soviet physicists were there as well, in body and in mind, 
A number of them had studied, in fact, in England at the time. And a critical mass of them came together in Ukraine, in Kharkiv, which is a place the Ukrainian army recently recovered from Russians, where they founded the Ukrainian Physical Technical Institute. It opened its doors on paper and I'd say physically opened its doors in 1929 or 1930. And already at that time, you had talented, capable individuals on the cutting edge of physics who were prepared to do investigations into the structure of the atom. Many of them studied also in Leningrad and Moscow, the two other major centers of Soviet physics. Some of the people gathered rain at the time were Igor Kurchatov, who became head of the Soviet atomic bomb project some years later, Kirill Sinyelnikov. Sinyelnikov was the director of the Ukrainian Physical and Technical Institute for a while, involved in the atomic bomb project too. A very well-known physicist who worked on the hydrogen bomb for a while, Lev Landau, who won a Nobel Prize in physics in 1968. So in Ukraine, not to mention other Soviets, but in Ukraine, in Kharkiv, already by the early 1930s, you had a critical mass of people, not just a critical mass that you would need for an explosion, a critical mass of people carrying out investigations into nuclear structure. It helped a great deal that there was lots of funding and these very capable individuals. When I was reading through your book, you do kind of talk a lot about the relationship between science at the time and sort of Soviet Marxist ideology and the kind of tensions there, how in some ways the Marxism really kind of suited scientific advancements. But could you just talk about the relationship there? Surely. A number of societies in the 20th century and into the 21st claim to be founded on modernity, notions, science and technology, being progressive. The United States foremost among them from the late 19th century in the progressive era. The Marxists in the Soviet Union, in what became the Soviet Union, and Marxists generally believed that they had uncovered a science of society, not only a powerful analytical tool that the driving force of history is uh, class war, alienation of the worker, and so on, but that it in itself was a scientific enterprise. And after the revolution, such leaders as Lenin and Trotsky firmly believed that they would succeed in building communism if they were able to bring Marxist ideology, worker control of the means of production, and modern science and technology all together in the Soviet Union. Then it would become an unbeatable economic force more powerful than the United States, which was often held up as a kind of example of what you might achieve with modern technology. What helped also was the fact that Lenin and Trotsky, unlike later on Stalin, believed that science and technology were somehow independent of capitalist productive relations, that they could literally and figuratively lift up science and technology and carry it to the Soviet Union where it would thrive and prosper, triggering economic growth. So Marxism is a very scientistic, modernistic doctrine, and it helped that you had a cutting-edge science like nuclear physics that might be hooked into future economic growth. 
tied together with the guidelines of Marxist thought about all of the achievements of science serving the masses, not necessarily just the profit motive of capitalists and helping the wealthy members of society. There's a whole literature in the 1920s about how science and technology are naturally materialist. They're not idealist. They're not capital. They can be in socialism or in communism, but they will operate better in the socialist world. I'm just kind of curious if you think that like, we can see this legacy in Russian politics and political thinking today. I think we can see this, even though we no longer have a Marxist regime or regime that claims to be Marxist. We certainly haven't had a regime that claims to be Marxist since 1991. And a lot of Marxist scholars would say that the Soviet Union was, in many sense, never really what Marx and Engels had envisaged. It's actually state capitalism, some of them would say. But it was always based on the notion that armed with the advantages of the socialist system, we will reach and surpass the West. There was evidence of that in particular in the sciences with, in the 1950s, Sputnik, the first satellite in space, 1957. For that, the first nuclear power station to produce electricity for peaceful purposes, for the civilian grid in 1954 that came online in Obnitz, which is a city about three hours by car southwest of, of Moscow. Been to Obninsk, was in the control room before they closed it down sometime in the late 90s. And in my honor, I think, a small leak of water in the reactor hall as I was there. And they wouldn't let me go into the reactor hall itself, claiming it was dangerous. Two babushkas, two grandmothers came out with buckets and took care of the matter. In any event, that was the first reactor in the world to produce electricity. Fusion reactors that are now reaching break-even points in power generation were developed in the Soviet Union. You turn to the post-Soviet period, it's harder to see this in the Yeltsin period, this faith and support for science and technology because of the economic crises of the era. But it's certainly true under Vladimir Putin, with Putin as president. Tremendous state support for large-scale projects, just like in the Soviet period. Arctic conquest, development of nuclear applications, a new space launch site within Russia because Russia lost its launch site with the breakup of the Soviet Union. The Russians have now started producing, building, and floating shipyards, floating nuclear power stations. If you notice Putin's rhetoric over the last couple of years, it's all about significant achievements in the military sphere. So there is always not only this faith in science and technology in the Russian state for the last 100 years. I think there's also a determination to claim that Russia was, is, and will always be a superpower, a scientific superpower. So we see, if not Marxist underpinnings to that belief, we see other underpinnings to the belief that Russia will always be a leading superpower. I do remember seeing in your book as well the point that it wasn't just in the like age of nuclear power, that it wasn't just like nuclear projects that were attempting to be like the biggest and the best. It was also other scientific projects as well. I think you called it like a tendency towards gigantomania, that everything had to be like huge, partly as a way for like people of Russia to sort of like gather around, essentially. Thank you. Can I just ask 
Perhaps this is obvious for anyone who has an interest in nuclear science, but how central was nuclear power to Cold War dynamics? In what ways did like one shape the other and vice versa in Russia at the time? There is some evidence that at first did not grasp how important nuclear weapons would be. And it took some convincing for him to support a full-scale project that led to the Soviet atomic bomb in 1949, only four years after the U.S. detonated its bomb in July and then used two nuclear bombs on Japan and Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Once Stalin realized that weapons were part of the New World Order, he ordered the head of the secret police, Lavrenti Beria, he ordered Beria to spare no resources to build a bomb. And bombs are not just bombs, as you know. Bombing operations to extract uranium ore. And it's something like 2,500 to 1 in what ratio you need of ore to get one of uranium, one kilogram of uranium. So the factories that had to go up suddenly to uranium ore were also massive and built very quickly with requisitioned labor, including prisoners of war, including German prisoners of war. The same went for the production reactors that the Soviet Union built to produce plutonium from the uranium for use in nuclear weapons. So very rapidly, the USSR, just like the United States, by the early 1950s, saw the bomb as crucial Cold War competition. And although my book doesn't spend as much time on uh, nuclear doctrine as it does on other things, I'm a historian of technology and environmental historian, it's clear that doctrine was crucial here in accelerating the growth of the nuclear enterprise as quickly with the motivating fear and policy of both countries, the United States and the Soviet Union, being called mutually assured destruction, where you build so many nuclear weapons and delivery systems on the triad of jets, submarines, and intercontinental ballistic missiles, that no country can get away with a surprise attack. They were to attack with all of their nuclear forces. The other country would still have more than enough to destroy the enemy. Mutually assured destruction became the motivating force of all arms, of the arms race even at times when the USSR and the United States agreed to arms control. And I think that the size and shape of the Soviet military construction, production, and research and development apparatus indicates in which state projects are the only kinds of projects that will succeed in the Soviet Union. You have massive state support that lead to prize to be gigantic. This is precisely a great field for gigantomania to prevail in the industrial complex. I just want a quick interval here, Christina. I learned about basically within the Cold War, this particular bit of like nuclear politics. So like mutually assured destruction when I was like 15 or 16. But I don't know how much in America, like you guys learned about like this particular period. How much did you like learn about nuclear, basically politics in the Cold War? I would say for me, I think one, we generally don't have the best historical education in the US, but particularly modern US history. 
And I feel like the Cold War period, it definitely was just kind of like a brief overview of the Bay of Pigs. Like, oh, hey, remember when we all almost died? Oh, that's a thing of the past. Like, lucky that's not on the table anymore. And then kind of very much moved on. One of the things this book is arguing and definitely making me realize is just like how much the Cold War, but also nuclear power, like really pervaded everything culturally, politically. While I definitely knew that like I didn't have the best background in this area, I really am realizing how little time we spent on something that was actually so like formative to like the 21st century. Same. Oh yeah, your book made me realize like how, as you said before at the beginning, like how much financial support went into all of this, like how much nuclear politics has like shaped and still like shapes our politics up to this day. So it's kind of like, it's really great to like learn about it more in detail. I think in my next career, this has been very painful. I'm going to do studies of microbreweries on small island economies because writing about the Soviet Union and about nuclear war is not always the most happy thing on a daily basis. For me too, I can remember, you've probably seen duck and cover films where the U.S. actually held drills for children in schools to be prepared for the nuclear blast. So what do you do if you see the blast? You duck down to the ground and you cover yourself. In second grade, I believe it was, and third, we were still doing these drills as if it was possible to survive a nuclear war. I got in trouble because I was already culturally aware. All of the girls were on the inside of the wall and then the boys were on the outside. I guess I was seven or eight years old. I asked the teacher, shouldn't we be half and half if some of us survive the war so that we can replenish human society afterwards? If you kill all the boys, what's that about? It helped. My father was a nuclear engineer, so I knew more at that age than other kids did. I think this kind of leads perfectly into one of our questions about the Miss Adam contest. Just like this really interesting issue of nuclear gender, perhaps you might call it. But for a little bit of context, could you explain to everyone what the Miss Adam contests were, which ran until as recently as 2011, and just kind of this weird gendered manifestation of nuclear culture, and just like the role that gender plays in nuclear history in Russia? Gender plays a fascinating role in nuclear history, not just in the former Soviet Union, not just in Ukraine and Russia today, but throughout the world. If you look at the enterprise and the employees, and especially if you look at the employees in the research and development side of nuclear energy and military applications, it's an almost entirely male enterprise, especially as you move up towards laboratory directors and other senior researchers. This has been the case since the very beginning. But the Soviet Union is a special case because after the revolution, the idea was that the revolution would liberate all citizens, men and women, from old patriarchal institutions like the church and the czarist regime so that each member of society could contribute to some glorious future. Already beginning in the 1920s, women entered industry as workers and the scientific apparatus as graduate students 
becoming leading scholars as well. Although, once again, as you moved up through the scientific enterprise, laboratory directors, institute directors, and so on, levels of publication, what have you, women were underrepresented there, but still far ahead of the rest of the world in terms of employment of women in the scientific enterprise. And to this day, many of the employees in the scientific enterprise, medical, research, what have you, are women, although some of the European countries like Lithuania are further ahead in terms of percentages. So it was really quite bizarre to see a nation that had founded itself on liberation of women from institutions of patriarchy and sexism. It was really quite bizarre to see around 2002 or 2003 the post-Soviet nuclear enterprise, Ross Atom, begin a Miss Atom contest with women expected to be sex objects, beautiful things. It was an internet contest that lasted for eight years until 2011, but women posed themselves in photographs in bikinis in front of nuclear power stations, for example. And it just seemed to me so incongruous that a nation which prided itself on liberation of women and made a big point in the propaganda war with the West of claiming that women were central to the scientific apparatus, that suddenly we've gone backwards. We've gone back to a time when women are more minor employees or sex objects. Now, it should be pointed out also that in the 1950s in the United States, there were similar kinds of contests, Miss Adam contests, but they weren't really so much a contest to pick a winner as opposed to Las Vegas Chamber of Commerce trying to get more tourists to come out to Las Vegas to see the mushroom clouds way over there, 100 miles away. And one of the ways they attracted people to Las Vegas was to designate a misatomic bomb, a woman who would pose in a mushroom cloud swimsuit. That's what got me interested in it in the first place, was seeing this clear sexism and tying of women to one aspect of the bomb in Las Vegas and having it reappear in post-Soviet Russia in the 2000s. The Miss Atom contest continued until 2011, as mentioned. I don't know why it ceased, but it was always, although open to all people of the former Soviet Union, all the republics, and also the East European nations, which many of which had Soviet nuclear reactors, and some of them are still operating to this day, the contest was more and more almost exclusively Russian women. I met a few of them, coincidentally, some of the representative Miss Atom contest at a Atom Expo in Moscow in 2009. A friend in the atomic apparatus invited me to the expo where I could have met people from Kazakhstan selling to industrial customers enriched uranium and things like that. But many of the presenters at the various exhibitions in the expo were women who had been in the Miss Adam contest. I don't really know what to look at that. <laughs> wow, that is incredibly bizarre. I think, I think I, it's bizarre. It's incredibly bizarre. I think I'd vaguely heard about the Miss Atom contest, but I'd never heard of the Las Vegas Tourism Board Miss Atomic Bomb. Yes, 1950s. Wow, okay. The cross-cultural similarities there are actually pretty funny when you think about it. Like, <laughs> come and see the mushroom clouds. 
Sorry, I'm still racist in this. Incredible. You know, it's easy to write a book when the people who are running things out there are so bizarre. There's never a shortage of material. I don't have to make anything up. I just say what I see. <laughs> it's so weird the way in which, like, misogyny, like, turns up in, like, history, particularly one about nuclear politics. <laughs>